You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Guys, I ought to be off to a pretty good start today. This is my last chance to get to spend some time with you. I've had just the last two or three days. I've loved being here. I've been here a long time. We were talking about it, I think, a couple days ago. Greg, it's been at least 15, maybe 17 years. It's been, man, geez. Of course, I started when I was 12. So, my goodness. And I've seen some things change, but one thing that's always true of Asbury is there seems to be a a spirit that is unique about this place. And if it's the only place you've ever been, then it might not seem special to you. But as one that's been literally in different parts of the country and in other parts of the world, I can tell you that what God is doing in your midst at Asbury University is truly unique. And these are clearly some of the most significant days of your life. And as I leave, I'm going to continue to pray that God will just use these days to prepare you for something even more. That'd be all right. Here's the word of the Lord this morning. Why should I not care about the Ninevites? Or as Eugene Peterson translates it in his book, or in his translation called The Message, why can't I change what I feel about the world? And so this, I think, is the story of Jonah. Why can't I change what I feel about the world? Just, I want to tell the story of Jonah. How many have heard the story before? Oh, I'm in trouble. Most of you are familiar with it. Let me kind of put some things out so it's a little easier for you. You almost have to deconstruct what you already know. First, the story of Jonah is not about a whale. The story of Jonah is not even about a person. It's about a kind of person. Jonah is a kind of person who grows up in a highly religious environment, much like Asbury. He grows up with a clear sense of right and wrong. He has moral categories. The world is fair or unfair. It is good or evil. He believes that the Bible or his Torah is the Word of God, and he has what you would almost call an evangelical privilege. He feels like he is responsible to take what is in the Bible and present that to the world. And that actually is one of the themes of Asbury University. There are, in fact, moral categories. We are the people of God. The Bible is true, and He has told us how to present His Word to the world. But the story of Jonah is about how those categories and how these assumptions are themselves the problem. The story of Jonah can show us how the Gospel which also frees us and liberates us, blinds us. It shows us what the world already knows about us as Christians, but they're too polite to tell us, and it frustrates them. The story of Jonah is about how something that is so good like religion and is supposed to produce saints actually ends up producing monsters of some people. If we'll pull back and presume that we don't know the story of Jonah and let it speak to us again, it might 
broaden our categories and deepen our walk and maybe we will find our calling. Here's the story in a nutshell. Jonah, as I said, who grows up embedded deeply in a religious organization, is called by God one day to go to a place called Nineveh. It's this way on the map. Jonah decides instead to go in the opposite direction. He buys a ticket, gets on a boat, sails across the sea. So God sends a strong wind on the sea to start tearing the boat apart. The sailors that are in the boat get nervous. They grab Jonah and throw him overboard into the sea. And the moment they do, the sea calms down. While Jonah is in the sea, he is swallowed by something. Either a fish or well, something. Something in the sea swallows him. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And on the third day, the fish barfs him up on dry ground. Jonah dusts himself off and decides now that he will go to Nineveh. And when he goes into Nineveh, he starts to preach what he was told to preach, which is this, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all we know of his message. It's only five words in Hebrew. 40 more days and you guys are toast. When the people of Nineveh, who are infamous for their torture and violence, for their hatred of the Jews, hear this message, instead of killing him, they declare a fast. And when the king of Nineveh hears of Jonah's message, he declares a national day of repentance. And so the people of Nineveh, far from resisting the message, embrace the message. The king tells them to call urgently on the Lord and to repent of their sins. For in the king's words, who knows? Maybe God will forgive us. Maybe he won't. But this is our only shot. When God sees what the Ninevites has done, he does forgive them. He relents. He shows compassion. Now, Jonah is confused. So he gathers his stuff. He walks out of the city. He sits down in the scorching hot sun in the desert. And he has an argument with God. And it goes something like this. I knew it. I knew it. This is why I didn't want to go. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I knew that if they did what they did, you would relent and forgive them. Which means these people who are notorious, they are the Nazis of the ancient world, are going to get off scot-free. And if there is no punishment for the evil that they have done, then there is no reason to do what is good. Thank you, God. You have just confused the categories. You've just de-incentivized good people for doing good things. And he sits there sulking. God causes a vine to grow up next to Jonah fast. It sheds its branches over the top of him. So Jonah, now scorching in the sun, finally gets some shade. Still sulking, the Lord causes a worm to bite into that vine. And when it does, it destroys the vine. Now the vine dies. Jonah sits scorching in the heat. And he says to the Lord, I just want to die. Now, it is God who is confused. God says to Jonah, I feel about Nineveh 
the way that you feel about that vine. I created the people of Nineveh like I created that vine. And yet, you want the vine to live and you want the people of Nineveh to die. Why shouldn't I feel about Nineveh what you feel about the vine? Why can't I change my mind about bad people? The end. Literally, that's how the book ends. It ends sort of suspended. It ends with God and one of His servants on opposite sides of a moral issue. It's almost as if Jonah has a point, but God is incorrigible. He won't listen to him. It's almost as if Jonah has deep convictions about what is right and wrong and who is good and who isn't and who should pay and who should get rewarded. And these convictions have put him crossways with his own God. How you see why the world has such a hard time with Christians. It isn't their God they can't stand. It's our convictions. And sometimes our convictions, as sure as we are, we are right about them, put us on opposite sides of an issue with God. Are you still there? I saw four heads nodding. I saw 200 heads nodding. <laughs> Let me break the story down. It's got a few points. One of them is, you guys, it is entirely like God to call you to do something that is hard. It is like God to call you to do something with your life that you're not passionate about. That is so countercultural in even Christian universities today because the predominant idea is that I have to discover my giftedness. That is my passions and the, the, the part of the world I want to change. And once I discover that, I have to lean into that because then I will discover myself as if that were always the point. But what I'm telling you is, it is like God to call you to do something that you're not passionate about, something you're not good at, to go into places where you don't want to go and to minister to people that you don't, at least on this day, particularly like. Because God is not the possession of the church. God is not parochial. He doesn't belong to religious orders. God belongs to the world. He belongs to people who don't even like Him. People that don't even think He exists. He's that big of a being. And as long as we keep confining Him to something as narrow as what we're passionate about, I don't know how the world is ever going to come to hear about Him because most of the world doesn't have our assumptions. And so they need someone who is courageous enough to lead them. So it is like God to do this. There will come a time, maybe not for all of you, but for some of you, there will come a time when you will hear the voice of God. 
It will be a voice that comes from within you, not outside. It's not my voice. And it won't be your voice, but you'll be familiar with it. But that voice inside you will say things to you that you would not say. It would call you to stretch yourself, to push yourself, to work yourself. It will call you to be something, to do something, to try something that frankly you don't want to try. And at first, you'll try to reason it away. You'll use your intellect or your logic and it will tell you, oh, that's not really God. You're not sure about that. Those are just your own inklings. And you'll try to postpone it. And then you'll try to negotiate with it. You'll tell yourself, well, you know, if I only had more time, or if I only had a little more money, or if I wouldn't have done what I did two years ago, then I would respond to this call. But I don't think I can do that right now. And so you'll postpone it. But it won't go away. That call will get stronger over time. It will not get weaker. You can push pause for as long as you want, but there will come a day when as confused as you are and uncertain about this inkling, you will be so sure that God wants you to do something that you will know in your heart if you say no, you are walking in disobedience. You will know it. And you may not like what He wants you to do, but you will have to do it. I was a freshman. Is the upper deck freshman? Is the upper deck freshman? Come on. Like I'm sitting in Day Memorial, Hastings, Michigan, and the guy gets up. My dad's a preacher, and I'm in the back, way in the back, best seat in the house. And the guy gets up and he starts describing the call to ministry, and I hear this thing, and I remember halfway through it. Bob Zool was his name. He got halfway through his message. And I just sat there. My friends were all talking. And I just thought, crap. <laughs> I know what this means. He asked if anybody wanted to come forward. I refused. I grew up religious. I know what that meant. I surrender all. It's all done. And so I sat in the back, and when we dismissed, I walked out with my friends, but I knew on that day that something was different, and I knew I couldn't walk away from it. And yet I refused to do it, because I grew up shy, I grew up an introvert, I still am, I grew up stuttering, I couldn't hardly say two sentences without stuttering, I still stutter to this day. And I heard the call of God that day say, I want to get you in front of people, and I want you to tell them about the gospel. And I thought, man, that is a nightmare for someone who is an introvert, who can't put two sentences together, who's a preacher's son, I'm a bad sequel. That's what this is going to be. And so I went to school and I checked in as something else as a freshman. I refused to do it because it was just too hard. I'm not ashamed of that. In fact, I'm, a, I'm very thankful for that. And here's why. Because this is not everybody's call, you guys. But my call came out of my weakness, not out of my strength. And so whenever I fail in life, which is frequently, it doesn't destroy me because... Heck, I was supposed to fail. I shouldn't be surprised at this. If I were doing only my passions or only things that I'm gifted and good at, if I were honing my craft, then failure would destroy me. But this is not my craft. And I'm not doing this because I particularly love it. I'm doing it because I was called to do it. And if we do the thing we are called to do, 
We learn to like it and we get better at it and we go into every encounter in a spirit of weakness, not self-confidence. And weakness is strength. Your strength is in your humility. Because when you are humble, you call the armies of heaven to rise up in your defense. But when you are self-confident, they know you don't need them. You still there? There will come a time when God will put a call on your life. And for the record, this calling of Jonah is not to be a missionary or a pastor. So if you're studying for the ministry, that doesn't mean that you have answered that call. And if you're going to be a teacher or a coach or a lawyer or a doctor, that doesn't mean that you can't answer that call. The call of Jonah is not a call to be a missionary. It's a call to tell the Gospel. And you can do that in every discipline. It's not to a role. It's to a function. It's not to an office or a title. It's to a job that you can perform in any discipline. Go and tell the people of the world what I have told you to say. i got to move on. So Jonah gets into the boat and he starts to sail across the sea. God sends a strong wind. When Jonah gets into the boat, he pays the ticket, he goes down into the hull of the boat, and he falls sound asleep. Now Jonah, who is asleep, is oblivious to what is happening. He doesn't feel the storm that's coming on the sea. But the sailors do. And when the storm starts tearing the ship apart, the sailors begin to cry out to their gods. And the way the Bible puts it is, each sailor cried out to his own god. And they kept trying to hold the ship together. Now this image ought to rattle you. Because while Jonah who is the servant of the Lord, is sound asleep in the hull of the boat. It's the sailors who follow other gods who are actually trying to hold the boat together. The Midrash, which is the Jewish translation of Old Testament Scriptures, the Midrash says that the sailors in the boat represent the nations. And so if that story is right, what it means is the servant of God is asleep in a boat of nations. And a violent storm has come and it is tearing the boat or the world apart. And it is the other religions that are crying out to their gods, please save us from drowning. But it is the servant of Yahweh who is sound asleep in the boat. Have I made the point yet? The roles are reversed. And this is why Jonah is so disruptive to your nice evangelical theology. Because the wrong people are praying and the right people are sawing logs. Now you can say if you want that they were praying to foreign gods. But at least they were praying. We were asleep. And you can't deny that the storm was sent for Jonah it was not sent to tear the world apart. It was sent to wake the servant of God up. And you can say if you want that Jonah is God's chosen person. 
like we're chosen. But you can't deny, you guys, the whale ate us. It didn't eat the sailors. It ate us. The Scripture says God provided. The word means appointed. It means a sign. God sent a whale to devour His own people. Oh, man. If you can't see it right now, let me try to connect the dots for you. In the last three to five years, the conflict in our country, I have felt as though the country and the church was coming apart. I have felt pulls from special interest groups in my church. People that formed caucuses. It was always Jesus, yes, but this too. And I have felt my church and my city and my world was being pulled apart. And my tendency was to blame the special interest groups. Well, you know what? Maybe it's the Muslims. No, wait. Maybe it's the LGBT. No, wait. Maybe it's Black Lives Matter. No, wait. Maybe it's the transgender people. No, wait a minute. Maybe it's those far-left progressives. No, it's the MAGA people. They're the ones that are pulling everything apart. Maybe the storm was sent to wake us up. Maybe this has never been a punishment or just the logical consequences of decisions the world has made. Maybe God has allowed the turmoil and the disruption of the last five years to wake up the body of Christ and come to our calling. But if we're going to do it, there will have to be a death in the resurrection. Jonah is swallowed by the whale. Fish. He's in the belly of the fish. And he starts to pray. And here's the thing that struck me, you guys. You can read it yourself. It's in Jonah chapter 2. Don't read it now. While he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah never once mentions the Ninevites. He never once mentions the sailors. He never once mentions the nations of the world. When Jonah is in the heart of the fish, all he prays for is his own rising. In fact, the language that he uses is the language of death and resurrection. He says, Lord, you have cast me away from your presence. Now please raise me out of my grave. Jonah sees the belly of that fish as his grave, as his dying. And he sees the fish vomiting him onto dry ground as his resurrection. Maybe this is why Jesus would say in the Gospels, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. In Jesus' mind, the swallowing of Jonah was not just a punishment, it was a preparation. You can't go to Nineveh and reach the people you need to reach until something in you dies. Your evangelical privilege, your strong sense of right and wrong, your moral categories, this self-confidence that you have that, ah, we know what the truth is and we have to bring this to the world. Your ego, your ambition, your desire to make a name for yourself, all of it has got to die. It's got to die. 
So I'm in college, I'm in my sophomore year. I'm running in the opposite direction. I'm angry at God, I'm bad at my calling. This is going to be a wreck. My dad comes to see me one day. I'm on the third floor. We talk for about a half hour. And he goes walking down the stairs. And he stops at the landing and he looks up and he says, Are you all right? I said, No. No, I'm not all right. God bless him. He's 93 right now. He can hardly walk. God bless him. He walks back up those stairs that day and he comes and sits in my dorm room and we're there alone for two hours, you guys. And all I remember him saying to me is, Son, you gotta die. You gotta die. You're still too full of your ambitions and your egos and your moral convictions. You gotta let them go. I remember him saying, Son, you cannot exalt Jesus Christ and yourself at the same time. You will have to choose who is going to be famous when you're done with your career. Who's going to be all set up? Who's going to make it now when you're 60 whatever? Is it you or is it Christ? And you can't say both of us. You can't do that. One of you has got to lose so the other one can get their agenda done. Are you still with me? I'm going to land it in a second. You've heard me say two things. It is like God to call you into hard things. You're not passionate about them, but you can't deny He wants you to do them. And when He calls you, there has to be a death and a resurrection. Here's the last part. If you do what God wants you to do, you will find that wherever you go and however hard it is, God is already there ahead of you. You will find God is ahead of you. When Jonah goes to preach what I consider a very bad sermon in Nineveh, Instead of resisting, the Ninevites actually call for a national day of repentance. And I think to myself, how can you get such a great response from such a bad sermon? And the only way I can make sense of it was because the Spirit of God was already active in Nineveh before the prophet arrived. This must mean that God has a presence in every culture of this world. Even cultures that know nothing of Him. There is a way for them to come to God within their culture without buying into all of our evangelical beliefs. For God has witnesses everywhere and He cannot be silenced. The role of the prophet or the missionary or the teacher today is not to try to colonize the Christian belief in different parts of the world. It is to help the world find the presence of God that is already there. What the Gospel looks like when it takes on flesh and blood depends upon the culture that hears the Gospel. But it is always the Gospel that they must hear. Are you tracking? God will go ahead of you. So I'm in a university. The first time I ever preached in a university, it wasn't here. 
Uh, and I'm in the front row down where Greg is sitting right now. And I know in about three minutes they're going to ask me to come on the platform to speak. And I thought to myself, oh man, I can't speak to college kids. This is going to be a disaster. And so I'm sitting down there and I'm saying to the Lord, I don't know why you did this. I still can't put sentences together. I still don't even know what I'm talking about. I need you to give me something, man. Give me something now before I get up there. And I remember it clear as bell right down here. I had a voice inside me that said, you can't have it now. It's waiting for you on the platform. You never just take the presence of God with you. You step into the presence of God who is already there. So you can't have the presence of God like you want it if you don't push yourself to go to places you wouldn't go. But if you have the nerve, God will meet you extraordinary ways in those places. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, now with this Word, I pray You would call Your church to action. With your heads bowed, may I identify a few of you. I think there are some in the room right now who have heard a call from God. You don't like it. You don't agree with it. You're not good at it. You're not passionate about it. It's very confusing to you, but you can't deny there has been a voice inside of you calling you to do something that you're not particularly happy about. Do you have the nerve this morning to say yes? There are others who have said yes, but you've brought with you your ego and your ambitions and your own vision for doing this. You have your moral categories and you know how this works. And God is calling you this morning to die so that something new that is not of you, bigger than you, can rise. And there are some in the room that are, that are called and you're starting to do this and you are scared out of your mind. And you want God to give you clarity. Oh, give me clarity. God will not give you clarity. God will give you trust. You must learn to trust in times when you cannot be sure. So church, if I've spoken to you, would you just stand to your feet for a moment? I want to pray especially over you. I'll come off the platform for a second. I want to pray over those that I've just described this morning. Stay up here. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know who they are and I don't know where they are, but somewhere in this audience is somebody that is scared or they're angry, they're tired because You've called them to do something that is too big for them. And they might feel like they have to give up the dream for their life. Please show them that what they're doing is upgrading. This is an upgrade. And they're afraid right now. They think they're giving something up. They're actually getting something more. So please convince them of that. Somewhere in this room is me 40-some years ago. And I pray that You would give those people courage. Those that know their flaws and their weaknesses and feel like they can't do this. Would You remind them that in their weakness... You are strong. And Father, for those that are already doing this and they're terrified, would You go ahead of them now and meet them in that space in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.